What's up, everybody? It's a rainy early morning in Portland. Uh, Welcome to Tangentially Speaking. I'm Chris, your host. Uh, This week's guest is Phil Zuckerman, a sociologist who wrote a book called Living the Secular Life, which is about uh, the growing movement. I don't know if you call it a movement, but certainly the growing population, uh, growing numbers of people in the United States who are self-declared secularists, in other words, not religious people, but who are, um, you know, as ethical and moral and uh, have some sort of structure guiding their behavior uh, toward decency in their lives, even though there's no there's no God, there's no overarching authority figure in the sky watching them to make sure that they do the things they're supposed to be doing. They just do them. Imagine that. Sort of a self-organizing principle. If you enjoy uh, this conversation with Phil, I hope you'll take a look at his book. It's got fantastic uh, reviews on Amazon. It's doing really well. I think it's like four and a half stars or something. Uh, and uh, it's selling quite well. So Check it out. Uh, I haven't read the book. Um, I don't think it was published when we spoke, or maybe it just came out. Um, but I intend to. Unfortunately, I'm at a time in my life now where I cannot read anything that isn't directly uh, pertaining to what I'm trying to write. So it's kind of a bummer, you know. You know, the old adage is find something you love and uh, you know, and make it your work, and then you'll be happy all the time. But what often happens is you find something you love, you make it your work, and then you, that sort of drains some of the fun out of it, actually, because you know now you can't do it for pleasure; you're doing it for work, right? So it's um, you know you love to drive, great, become a taxi driver. Mm, maybe you don't love to drive so much anymore. I'm not bitching about writing. I'm I'm very happy to be able to write for a living, um, but it does certainly cut down on the amount of reading I can do for pleasure. As always, thanks to all of you for your emails. Uh, One I wanted to mention this week is from uh, Nathaniel Farmer. He's 23 years old, planning to hike the entire 2,660-mile Pacific Crest Trail this year. If any of you have seen the movie Wild or read the book, that's about uh, hiking that same trail. So Nathaniel wants to go out there and uh, hike the trail, and he's hoping to raise about $10,000 for a badass charity, he says. Uh, So he wrote to me to ask uh, to pass this word on to you folks. He's doing it for the Heart to Heart International uh, and you can check out his page, the donation page at nathaniel-farmer.squarespace.com. Uh, you can see what he's doing, and if you want to donate to uh, send him on his way, that would be great. Uh, my understanding is the money goes to the charity, not to Nathaniel himself, and uh, so that seems like a pretty worthy cause. Another email I wanted to um, address uh, because it's uh, 
sort of a type of email that I receive a lot of. So rather than trying to answer them individually, I thought maybe I'll I'll talk about it a little bit here. I get a lot of emails from people who are not happy in the situation that they're in and they sort of want to break out and go travel and explore the world. Um, the person who wrote this email said that uh, she's finding that her career is toxic and uh, that passions have awakened for wandering through the woods, taking in the beauty of nature, researching and studying about psychedelics, learning about ancient history, expanding consciousness, and becoming healthier. Can't argue with that, right? Um, But the problem is, uh, she says, now that I, I know I have so much love for these things, I've become withdrawn at work, and I dread waking up in the morning to get paid less than I need to live somewhat comfortably, and so she's in this conundrum. Uh, I get a lot of emails like this, a lot of emails saying, you know, oh, you traveled and you did this and that. How did you pay for it? How do you do this? What's going, you know, what's the trick? Um, There's no trick. Uh, It's discipline. And I'm the least disciplined guy you're ever going to meet. Honestly, I, I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've vowed that I'm going to do a hundred pushups every day and, you know, a week later, I've forgotten all about it. It's it's um, a perennial problem I've had in my life. But on the other hand, uh, it also makes it very difficult for me to stick to something that I hate, whether, you know, job, education, relationship, whatever. <clears throat> because I don't have that discipline, I, I sort of fall out of things uh, pretty quickly. Uh you know, the inability to continue giving a shit about something I really don't give a shit about is both my biggest curse and my biggest blessing, I suppose. Um, In any case, when I say it's discipline, what I mean is I wanted to travel so bad that I was willing to make a lot of sacrifices in order to make it happen. So, you know, when I was reading this person's email, um, she talked about how she dreads going to work uh, to get paid less than what I need to live somewhat comfortably. Comfort is the word there. Comfort's the word that jumped out at me. Um, because as long as you're defining comfort in terms of this consumerist society that we live in, you are going to have to play their game in order to pay for that comfort. So if you define comfort as a nice apartment, a lot of stuff, a nice car, um, you know, the ability to travel all over the world uh, at will, like a vacation kind of thing, um, you know, nice clothes, going out for dinner a lot. If you're defining comfort in those terms, then there's no way you're going to extract yourself from the game because you have to play the game to pay for that stuff. So I guess my advice is take a real hard look at what quality of life means to you. And if there's a very deep contradiction in your life between what you're proclaiming in an email that you might send to me or when you're talking to your friends at night or whatever, and the way you're actually living. Because if your idea of comfort is freedom, if, if what you value is 
freedom, is time, is the opportunity to, to change what you're doing, is the, uh, the possibility of picking up and going and living in another country whenever you want to, then how are you living? Are you living in a way that makes those things possible? Or are you living in a way that makes those things impossible because you've accumulated so much shit because you've got mortgages and kids and blah, blah, blah. So if you don't, if you haven't signed on to those things yet, if you're not, if you've got kids, you've got kids, then, you know, your responsibility is to your children. But I've, I never had kids. And one of the reasons is that I never felt that I was willing to give up the ability to be dirt poor to take crazy risks, um, to do the sorts of things that, that it would be irresponsible of me to do if I had children. Um, you know, I, I didn't own a car till I was 50. I, I've never owned a house. I, I am, you know, I don't have a, a retirement account. I, I'm not going to get Social Security. I'll get like 200 bucks a month or whatever the minimum is, you know. I don't have security of any sort. Uh that's the cost of living the way I've lived. That's one of the costs. Now, people don't think about that, right? People hear me telling my stories or whatever, and they think, oh, what a great life. That must be so cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it is cool. But honestly, you know, I look at getting old. I'm 52 now. I look at getting old, and I kind of hope I just die fast because if I don't, and if this next book isn't successful and that whole career opportunity sort of, uh, you know, evaporates, which can definitely happen, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't, I don't have any nest egg. I don't have any, you know, house that's being paid off that I'm going to, you know, rent out or sell for a million dollars at some point. I don't have any of that shit. So before you think uh, <clears throat> that it's a good idea to just, you know, sell everything you own and hit the road, think about the whole package, right? Because the, there are downsides to it as well. I've got friends all over the world. That's a wonderful thing because people I met over the years, what, I've got good friends in Australia and Spain and in Oregon and in Canada, all over the place. That's wonderful. But it's also fucking lonely because I can't go out for a beer and see my friends, it, I, see, I see these people once every five, ten years. I don't know if I'll ever see my friends in Australia again. There's a downside to this kind of life. So I'm not saying, hey, be happy in your cubicle. What I'm saying is don't um, glamorize, idolize, exaggerate the upsides of the alternative um, <clears throat> and demonize what you have. Maybe what you have is the best fit for you. And if it isn't, then it's time to take a real hard look at what you really value and whether or not your day-to-day -day life is getting you closer to that. So if what you really value is travel, if that's what you want to do, if you're 23 years old and you say, my number one priority at this time of my life is I want to go to Asia. I want to spend six months in India. Well, then stop buying the drugs, stop buying the food, stop going out for dinner, stop buying the clothes, stop doing everything that stops you from doing that. Save your money. Get five grand in the bank, quit your job, and go to India. 
because that's what it's going to take. Say goodbye to your friends, say goodbye to your parents, whatever, and fucking do it. Um, But there's no secret other than what I just told you. The only secret is look at your life, figure out what matters, and make sure that what you're doing on a day-to-day basis is getting you closer to that, is in at least in alignment with that and not working against it. To the extent that there is any secret, the secret is that you'll meet people and you'll encounter situations when you're already out there in the world that you can't possibly imagine from where you're sitting right now. And you'll just have to trust me on that uh, because that's the way life is, right? Uh, you know, to bring it down to a really pedestrian level, uh, you know, let's say you're imagining what it would be like to walk into that bar uh, from outside and you say, well, I imagine it's going to be this, that and the other. And then you go inside and, oh, it's a gay bar. I didn't expect that. Or, hey, there's that friend of mine. Oh, I haven't seen you in a while. You know, all sorts of things can be going on in that bar that you don't know about. It could be, you know, an open mic and you decide to get up there and tell a few jokes. And next thing you know, you're a professional comedian. Who knows what the fuck is going to happen in that bar, right? Now, expand that because nothing ever fucking happens in bars. But expand that, uh, you know, multiply that hugely. And that's what it's like to really be out on the road. You meet people you could not have imagined existed. Uh, And you'll hear stories about places that you didn't even know to look for on a map. You're sitting in Pushkar, India. You meet someone who just came back from, you know, from some little village in the desert in Rajasthan where they're having some festival and it's like mind-blowing and you decide to change your plans and go to that little village and, you know, that's how it works. That's why it's so interesting. You can't plan it. You just have to take it day by day. That's travel. That's the difference between travel and tourism. Tourism, you know what you're going to do. You've got a list. You've got an agenda. It's all worked out, you know. And you go and you do it, and yeah, it might be cooler than you anticipated or or less cool than you anticipated or whatever, but you know what you're going to do. When you're traveling, you don't fucking know what you're going to do. You just buy a ticket and you go and you travel till you run out of money. And the thing is, you might not run out of money because you might meet somebody on the road who says, dude, I really need somebody to edit this manuscript I've been working on. And you've, you're good at that. Hey, okay, I'll give you a thousand bucks. So you sit down and... You know, you work on the manuscript in some internet cafe or you borrow a laptop or maybe you have a laptop with you and you do the work and you got a thousand bucks now. That's another four months in India. Easy. Once you're there, most of the money goes to the ticket. Once you're in the Southeast Asia, it's fucking cheap, man. 250, 300 bucks a month. That's doable. It's tight, but it's doable. Double that is eminently doable. So you meet people. Things come up. Uh, You hear about travel destinations. You also hear about programs. You hear about people who are doing things like traveling around the world, working on organic farms, and they get free room and board in exchange for the labor that they do working on the organic farms. And at the same time, they're learning about organic farming, right? So if you've got an interest, if you're particularly into organic farming or you're into, you know, uh, if you're a good auto mechanic, I knew a guy who was a mechanic for this 
company that ran these top deck buses from London to Kathmandu. They did these amazing rides. I don't know if they still exist, but they had those British double decker buses. And they would, uh, they had the seats upstairs. So you had this great view, and then everybody slept downstairs. And this guy was a mechanic with them, and he got free trips back and forth on these buses from London to Kathmandu. Uh, Lefty was his name. I met him in Kathmandu years and years ago. Um, anyway, stuff like that, because there's a whole sort of industry around travel. If you have any linguistic skills, you might find yourself being a guide in some country that you particularly love and you speak the language. So that's the only secret. I mean, the other stuff I said about discipline, save your money and do it. That's the thing. I mean, jump, jump in the fucking water, right? Yeah, it's a little cold at first, but it gets really nice once you're in there. And then trust that you'll find stuff and leave a couple grand in the bank so you can come home if you need to. Don't, don't, you know, don't be crazy. But uh, yeah, stuff happens out there that you can't anticipate until you're on the road. All right, that's enough for me. Uh, this week's mashup is various versions of the classic tune, Early Morning Rain. You'll hear, hear <clears throat> Elvis, great Elvis. How long has it been since you listened to Elvis, really? Uh, Gordon Lightfoot, the great Canadian crooner. Ian and Sylvia Tyson. Peter, Paul, and Mary, who I think really made the f- song famous. Uh, and then a- another clip of Elvis, a little bit of Elvis there. And then I... Finish it off with Eva Cassidy. If you don't know Eva Cassidy, check her out. She's a really interesting character. She died uh, in her late 20s, I think, pretty much undiscovered. Um, And they put, I think her parents put together um, some recordings that she had made singing at little clubs in Baltimore, I believe. I think she's from Baltimore. Um, And her voice and, and her delivery is just so stunningly spectacular that um, somebody played, I saw a documentary about her, it's a while ago, so I'm kind of sketchy on the details, but it it came to the attention of someone in in London who had a radio show and he played a song and people just went fucking nuts. And then they tracked her down and figured, yeah, and then threw together this compilation. And but, but there's there's not much because it's you know maybe a dozen or two dozen uh, recordings that uh, that they had. She died of uh, I think leukemia, something very tragic, very young. But uh, you'll hear her her voice is just absolutely otherworldly. I thought of this song not only because it's a rainy early morning, but because. Um, there are a few homeless guys who sort of stay on the corner here where I am now, and uh, they just chill there all the time. And it's been really cold recently, and those guys are sleeping out there. And, you know, I walk by them on my way to have a $4 latte every morning, and, um, you know, sometimes I pick up some coffee for them. And the other day I gave them a six-pack of apple cider hard cider that i had mistakenly purchased for myself i read this uh, michael pollan essay about johnny appleseed turns out johnny appleseed was essentially growing apples that he could press to make alcohol to sell to the the uh colonialists as they as the as the frontier was spreading westward so this image that's 
this disnified image of Johnny Appleseed that's promulgated by American culture as this, you know, wholesome guy. <laughs> Turns out he was a fucking boozer, you know. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I've been thinking about these guys, and, you know, it, it's the conundrum, right? Like, I don't know. First of all, I'm giving them alcohol. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I You know, it's not good for their health, but they're alcoholics, so what the fuck? Um you know, and I keep thinking, like, what I should be doing is inviting them in for a hot shower uh, and, you know, feed them or something. But I don't because I've got computer equipment in here. I've got shit and I worry that, you know, word gets out on the street. There's some shit worth stealing in that house. And so, you know, I don't know. Does that make me an asshole? I, I, I honestly don't know. But anyway, I've been thinking about these guys and, um, and uh, this song is... Uh, a song about or a song sung through the voice uh, the experience of a hobo uh, who's sort of hanging out by the airport watching the jets go over uh, he's out at the end of the runway runway number nine and he's watching the the jets take off and thinking about it thinking about his life it's worth us thinking about because we're living in a depression right now i know we're all seeing the the uh, stats on the news, unemployment rate goes down. Oh, isn't that great? Yeah, except what they don't tell you is that the jobs are shit. And the other reason the unemployment rate's going down is because people have just given up. So um, as far as number of children living in poverty, percentage of the American public living in poverty, and the, the paucity of the help, the assistance that we're giving them, uh, this is an incredible time, a very, very bad time. So anyway, that's why I picked this song. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Hope you enjoy the mashup. Catch you next week. In the early morning rain With a dollar in my hand and aching in my heart And my pockets full of sand I'm a long ways from home And I miss my loved ones so In the early morning rain With no place to go Out on the runway number nine Big 707 set to go And I'm stuck here in the grass With a pain that ever grows Now the liquor tasted good And the women all were fast And there she goes, my friend She'll be rolling down at last Hear the mighty engine roar See the silver wing on high She's away in westward bound High above the clouds she'll fly Where the morning rain don't fall And the sun always shines 
Zuckerman rhymes with duck, he tells me. Uh, author of Living the Secular Life, uh, New Answers to Old Questions. Uh, I, uh, I was looking at the uh, the Amazon page here, and you got some amazing reviews, really, really mm. nice reviews. Uh, the book was chosen as one of the best books of 2014 by Publishers Weekly. Congratulations for that. Well, thank you. I was really happy about that. Yeah, it just, it just came out a week ago. So I'm just, uh, it's all new, but just to get that kind of uh, positive feedback felt really good. I'll bet. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, is this your first book? It's not. It's actually my fifth, Ooh. but it's my first book, trade book. You know, I've pub all my previous books have been with Oxford or NYU or Rutledge or, you know, academic presses. Um, so this is my first kind of leap into a sort of wider audience. This is the first one where you actually have a chance of making some money, possibly. <laughs> it's exactly it's the first <laughs> that, and, and hopefully that it'll get a wider readership. I mean, you know, which is really to me, if you get, if you if you have the chutzpah to write a book, you know, you think you have something to say. Wouldn't you want as many people to read it as possible? So I'm just very excited that it's with a publisher that has a good. Uh, good publicist department and it's really getting it out there to places that you know your academic presses just can't do right yeah penguin press they're they're good i guess mm. uh our publicist at harper was transferred over from the cookbook department okay yeah we, we weren't very impressed with uh, <laughs> the publicity uh, efforts by harper um, anyway, uh, living the secular life. So tell me what I, I've read the reviews. I haven't read the book. It just came out a week ago, as you said. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you are a, an old buddy of my cousin and friends of mine from, from LA. So, uh, I wanted to have you on, try to give you, uh, the, the Chris bump 
Thank I can't you. offer you a cool bear bump, but I can give you the first <laughs> bump, whatever that's worth. It's worth a lot. Thank you. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, so uh, what what led you to write this book? You're talking about, you know, how this is your first trade book. A friend of mine in publishing once said to me, uh, no one should ever write a book unless they absolutely have to. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I enjoy writing. So to me, it, it's not very... That's my good time, you know, where I get away and can come to my office and just write my book is always my most peaceful time. So I enjoyed it. But but there is some truth to be said exactly that, you know, you, you really have to – there has to be a strong motivation there. And I, I, I said – I guess I would have – I had two motivations. The biggest was, you know, I guess – Religion does a lot. Religion does a lot for a lot of people for a long time. It provides community. It provides answers about the big questions about life and death and meaning and existence. It, it constructs morals and ethics. It helps people raise their kids. It helps them get through tough times when they have breast cancer or a divorce or the death of a loved one, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. I mean, so and, and, and not to mention all the supernatural stuff about you know what you know this and that miracle or whatnot. So I mean, it clearly provides people with with comfort and hope and community and all these things, but it has been for some time. But what we're seeing now is that more and more and more Americans and people in other countries as well, all over the world, are claiming to not be religious. They're not going to church anymore. They're not identifying as religious anymore. And they're even shedding a lot of the supernatural beliefs that come with being religious. And um, there's been quite an explosion. So just to give you a sense of the explosion, back in the 60s, I was born in 69. So in my lifetime, okay, so back in 69, less than 5% of Americans said they had no religion. By 1990, it was still only around 7 8%. Um, and then suddenly we saw this big explosion so that by 2001 it was at 14% and that made headline news on CNN and USA Today. Then it was up to uh, uh, in 2010 and 11 it was up to 16, 17%. Now we're at 20% minimum when Gallup just came out a year or so ago with a 30% figure. So somewhere between 20 and 30% of Americans are now saying they have no religion. And what's even more interesting is that Pew Research asked those folks if they're looking for a religion, okay, maybe you just quit your church because you didn't like the pastor, but you're looking for another church. No, 90% said they were not looking for religion. They were quite content as they are. And I, this is just remarkable sociologically. We've never seen this kind of secularization in our country's history. Uh, it's the only kind of religion, quote unquote, to be growing in all 50 states. It's sort of the fastest growing orientation. So my question was, if religion provides all these things, then and now we have tens of millions of Americans saying they're not religious. Well, how are they getting those things? And uh, how do they, you know, deal with tough times? How do they have morals and ethics? How do they raise their kids? How do they deal with death, et cetera, et cetera? So that was the question, and the answer is quite well, <laughs> quite well. And this was something I wanted my fellow Americans to know. I wanted them to know that this rise of secularism is not something to be fretted over or feared or scared of. It's actually good news. So I wanted to kind of spread the good news of secularism, as it were. <laughs> wow. The book's been out a week and you've already got your elevator pitch and your hooks and everything. Well <laughs> done, <know>? man. <laughs> well, I, to be quite fair, I had 17 radio interviews uh, two days ago. And so I've got it down, I guess. <laughs> good. Well done. Well done. Spreading the good news of secularism. All right. Uh uh, two two things I, I was thinking about while you were speaking there. One is that those numbers you're you're quoting are amazing. I, as you say, that's a that's a you know a, 
a change in uh, public opinion or, or public orientation that is rivaled only, I would say, by the acceptance of same-sex marriage, perhaps, yeah, uh, right. not coincidentally in the same time frame. Um, but right. the, in both cases, the I think the real uh, dramatic numbers are hidden in that because you're saying it's gone from three or four or five percent, I don't twenty years ago, thirty years ago to fourteen, twenty percent now. Um, and that's of Americans. So that's people who are answering these polls who are, I guess, voting age and above. Correct. Um, for that big a shift to take place in the entire adult population, that means people just entering into that age group in their 20s, it must be like 80, 90 percent. Uh, you're, you're, you're correct that it, it is, if you break it down by age cohorts, the older Americans are more likely to be religious and the younger are the least likely. It's not as high as that, but they're saying at, at least at least 33% of 20-somethings, those between 18 and 29, are saying they have no religion, which is, just to give you a sense, okay, so 20 years ago, just 20 years ago, when, when 18 to 29-year-olds, when 20-somethings were asked their religion, there were twice as many who identified as evangelical Christian as those who said, none, I have N-O-N-E, no religion. It has now completely flip-flopped so that now non-religious Americans among 20-somethings outnumber evangelical, identified evangelicals by two to one. Wow. Been, so there, this cohort, the 18 to 29 cohort, is the most secular cohort this country has ever seen, and you are absolutely correct that it goes simultaneously with the acceptance of homosexuality, and these things are uh, definitely related somehow. Now, do you see, we, we've established a, some sort of connection, possibly not just uh, correlational, co- uh, not causative, between acceptance of homosexuality and the rejection of organized religion. Is there some sort of universality in secularism? Mm. You described it as a religion yeah. in a way earlier. Is there, is there a community of secular people or are there particular patterns of behavior that you can attribute to them? Yes, yes and yes, and a little bit of no and a little bit of no. So let me try and parse it out there. Um, We can talk about the community first and then the kind of commonality second, universal commonality. So um, interestingly enough, you know, secularity takes on different shapes depending on, you know, the society it's existing in. So for example, I lived in Scandinavia for two years religion is so weak in Scandinavia, so quaint, so marginal, that your average secular person there doesn't think about religion that much, doesn't, certainly doesn't fear religion, doesn't see it as encroaching on their lives or their school boards or their governments, and hence does not have a strong atheist you know, identity, doesn't, doesn't have to defend themselves or attack religion, and certainly has no need for any kind of secular community. They're, they're getting their sense of community by living in Denmark, you know, speaking a language no one else speaks, playing soccer, you know, at, doing things at work, joining a book club, etc., etc., etc. Now you shift that to Alabama. You go to Alabama or Arkansas where secular people are few and far between and religion is strong. It dominates the public sphere. It dominates Little League. It dominates the school board. It dominates social life and cultural life in those parts of the country. To be a secular is a very, very strong identity. You have to be – you feel defensive. You feel alienated. You feel outnumbered. You feel um, defensive and you definitely uh, feel a need for community. So what we found is that there are many secular communities – that have sprouted up in the last 10 years all around the United States. Uh, some of them are small, you know, 
free thinkers, secular humanist type groups. There's even been this explosion of what's called Sunday Assembly, which has only been around for a year or two now, where they're they're actually congregating on Sundays and singing songs and hearing speeches, but it's all devoid of anything supernatural. So they're sort of like trying to replicate what they like about church in terms of community, but jettison all the God talk. So in, in, in this country, yeah, we are seeing secular communities starting to emerge. Center for Inquiries are getting more uh, more and more folks. Um, you're seeing people connecting online like never before. Meetups are everywhere. You can Every town now in America, you just go online, you can find a group that's going to meet for coffee. And that's all new. It wasn't the case like 20 years ago or even 15 years ago that you could find readily available groups to get together with based on their secularity. But again, that's kind of an American phenomenon. You don't see that kind of secular community in Great Britain, for example, or Holland. Um, but in terms of the universality, uh, again, secularity takes on different shapes and sizes depending you know, on your country and on your culture. But we do see some patterns. These are just averages. It's not you know every secular person. But the two biggies are wherever secularism is strong, for example, women's rights, women's status, Women's power and women's agency are increased, and this is across the board. Um, and converse, then the same holds true for gays and lesbians. Um, and conversely, wherever religion is strong, the world over, the power, prestige, and agency of women is weakened, and the status and power and privilege and rights of homosexuals is weakened. So, there—that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the good news of secularism. It does bring with it increased women's rights, increased gays, uh, rights for gays and lesbians, and a whole host of other things too, which we can get into if you'd like. Interesting. Um, a whole bunch of things are popping out in my head here. One is we're talking about religion as if it were one thing. True. Uh, and as someone who's dabbled in Buddhism over the years, I always sort of that, – that sets off alarm bells for me mm. because Buddhism has no problem uh, with homosexuals, is very respectful of women, has no financial uh, infrastructure – there's no sort of, uh, you know, initiation rituals, secret handshakes, uh, you know, power structure. If you want to call yourself a Buddhist, go right ahead. Nobody's going to shoot right. you or give a damn one way or the other. So I would just want to note that, you know, when people talk about drugs, you know, drugs are bad. Like, what what the hell? You know, are we talking about coffee or heroin here? Exactly. You know? Exactly. And with religion, when at least for myself, when I talk about religion as a thing, I'm talking about you know, Western uh, desert-based, you know, fierce person religions. <laughs> you, you, no, you got it. You got it. And in fact, absolutely, the diversity of religious expressions and or orientations and incarnations is 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 breathtaking. And, and Buddhism actually always stands out as in any conversation about religion in academia. You know, it's within three minutes, someone always throws up Buddhism and says, "Well, you know, your definition of religion is flawed because it's 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 almost the ultimate." Uh, counterexample. So you're absolutely right. There's so many different ways to be religious. There's so many different types of religious traditions. There's a, a whole spectrum, and 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 I appreciate that. But even even there, I could push back and say, even within Buddhism, what you just said, it sort of depends on what type of Buddhism you're talking about and where. Yeah. There are parts of the Buddhist world where there is absolute suppression of women. They are not allowed to have any authority over male priests. They are not allowed. There's a definite hierarchy of who's holier and who's not, and the females are below the males. There are initiation aspects, and, and, and it's not that there's a problem with homosexuality, but there's problems with homosexual sex. You're not to have it, you know? So, so it comes kind of depends on which type of Buddhism, which country, which culture, which monastery. 
Um, so, you know, as a, as a general rule, I, I agree with your characterization to a T, but even there, one could quibble and say, you know, there are sort of renouncer traditions that look at sex as, you know, a problem and, 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 and it takes away and, you know, at certain stages of your holy journey, you're not supposed to engage in it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and you can even go further and say Buddhism maybe isn't even a religion. It's more of a philosophy or Exa- uh, a discipline. True. I always do that. I, I just gave a lecture on, on Buddhism in my class a t- couple weeks ago, and as I was done, I stopped and I said, now of everything, you know, we went through the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and we talked about these teachings and these schools, and I said, now, what here is religion? You know, why is this considered a religion? Isn't it more a philosophy, a life philosophy? And so, so I, I, I would agree with you. And, 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 it, and, it, and you can see the correlations there where, um, for example, in Japan, here's a perfect example. Um, God belief is quite low. Um, religious identification is now quite low. It's plummeted in the last 75 years. But atheism is almost unheard of. It doesn't make, really make sense, right? You can still engage in Buddhist rituals and Shinto rituals, and you can still uh, uh, have an identification with it. And yet, it's very different from uh, you know, our standard kind of, as you said, desert-derived Judeo-Christian-Islamic notion of what religion is or ought to be. And so what that means is secular folks in a Christian or Muslim or Jewish context have a very different orientation about being secular than secular folks who live in a Buddhist-dominant culture. It's, it's so different. It's so different. That's an excellent point. I, I had a guy on the podcast recently um, that uh, has lived in Japan for 15 years, I think. And we were talking about the Japanese approach to sexuality. And it was very interesting because he said, you know, he said, I would talk to Japanese people about the way Americans deal with sexuality and, um, you know, all the, the weird little habits we have and the things that we think are okay and not okay. And they'd be fascinated by that. But when I, anytime I got into the, the issue of shame, Mm. you could just see their eyes glaze over and they, they were disgusted. They, mm. were, they were disgusted that Americans could think that sex was shameful. It's so interesting. Yeah. So you know, interesting. And the way he described it, he said it would be like if you tried to convince me that enjoying chocolate was something I should be ashamed of. <laughs> I would think you were crazy. And, and, you know, and it's like they know Americans and Brits and other people are like this, but they just, they just can't comprehend it. And they find it so distasteful that anyone would waste a life thinking, you know, this thing was shameful. Isn't that a trip? You know, while, while we're uh, uh, defining terms, let, let's get some, some stuff yes. out of the way here. Because I yes. think a, a very important point that you're making um, is that in the West, secularism is defined as what it's not. It's, an, mm. it's, a neg- it's non-religion. It's not Christian. It's not Buddhist or, mm. or, or Muslim or whatever. Um, whereas in a, in a place like Japan, it doesn't really exist because there's not that overbearing edifice to define oneself against, right? Correct. Uh, you, well said. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So now I interviewed uh, one of your colleagues, Peter Bogosian, on, oh, yeah. on this podcast. And right at the beginning, he, he pulled a fast one on me because mm. he said that he essentially um, claimed that uh, agnosticism was part of atheism. And I had always I learned that an atheist says there is no God, an agnostic says I don't know. Okay. <laughs> now what's going on here? Have I, am I out of? Uh, are my views outdated or what? No, no. Well, let's let's try and break some of these terms down. So, so the first thing to remember is when trying to label 
social phenomena or people's identities, there's no there's no right answer. These things are what people say they are in the context of their debates and discussions and lives and subjective experiences. So just just nobody has the final word on what an atheist means or what an agnostic means and, 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 and you know so what we simply have to do is say well this is what I mean by it and we can have a back and forth there um, so I would just say for my understanding um, atheist is someone who does not believe in God or lacks a belief in God. Believe it or not, there's even a debate about that. You know, do you, is it is, is an atheist someone who doesn't believe in God or has no belief in God? But ultimately, atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God or gods, and agnostic has really two two meanings that people can use it as. The main, the f most common one is what you just said. An agnostic is someone who does, isn't sure, can't say one way or the other, isn't convinced completely there is, isn't completely convinced there isn't, is kind of in the middle and can't, can't really say one way or the other. Um, but what the root of agnostic means is without knowledge. And what the other version of agnosticism is, sort of, is a sort of sense of, well, we can't say, we have no answers to the big questions. Why are we here? That may be unknowable. How did we get here? That may be unknowable. There may be things that we will lack knowledge about, perhaps forever. And I think Peter is clearly in philosophy, and philosophers love to parse these things out in funky ways that me as a mere sociologist can, can often uh, not follow. But, but what I would say is um, you could make the case that an, a an agnostic is an atheist because they're saying, well, I don't have enough information to believe in God. Um, but again, now we're getting into the philosophy things. By and large, you pick up someone hitchhiking. If they say they're an atheist, it usually means they don't <laughs> believe in God. They say they're agnostic. It usually means they're not convinced one way or the other. Um, and secular itself is hard to define. As you said, it's, it, it really just means non-religious. So, so it's really a, an identity that's predicated on, well, what is it not accepting or what is it rejecting? And so you have to sort of define, well, what do you mean by religion? And, 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 and that's going to be different. In different parts of the world, religion's purely ritual-based. In other parts of the world, it's all about faith and belief. Um, my understanding, where I make the cut, is I say religion has to, has, is involved with maintaining some degree of supernatural beliefs, either in a god or gods or deities or karma or other realms. And I make that cut because I have to differentiate between religion and things like soccer or, or uh, rock and roll fans. I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but I, I make a difference and a distinction between those groups that believe or those people that believe in something supernatural. So for me, to be secular, uh, you, you, you are someone who doesn't identify as religious, you don't participate in anything religious, you don't belong to any religious group, and you don't hold supernatural beliefs. Uh, to varying degrees, it's not clear-cut. And that's kind of how I approach, uh, approach this question. So if someone is secular, uh, according to the, the definition that you just gave, um, but they truly believe that the United States is the greatest force for good that the world has ever known and that we are defending freedom throughout the planet. Yeah. Are they still secular? Yeah, I, I'd call them a nationalist. You, I, I, and you I, don't see nationalism as a, as a type of religion? Okay. I see it as similar to or like, but I if – if everything is religion, then nothing is religion. So I have to make some some cuts here. I think there's... <laughs> well, like, hold on. It's not everything. We're talking right. about irrational belief in something that's demonstrably untrue. Well, are my kids the most brilliant kids at Sycamore Elementary School? I mean, 
we all hold a lot of irrational beliefs that aren't demonstrably true. I think Edvard Munch is the best painter. I can't prove that. It's not scientific. But I think there's a difference between kind of uh, 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 nationalism is just kind of a subjective adoration of something. It's totally irrational. It's totally bunk. But you can't disprove it. You can't convince someone that the U.S. is... So yes, in that sense, it's an irrational belief that is predicated on... Um, emotions and psychological issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just don't, I see it as very similar to religion, but I just don't think it's the same as believing in supernatural beings. And you know what? I could, I, it's an interesting debate here. I mean, you know, I just don't, I don't know. I don't, my grandparents were Marxists and they believed in socialism and they thought it was going to answer all the world's problems. Uh, is that the same thing as someone believing in a, in a virgin birth that saves us from he uh, everlasting torment and hell? I guess it's a continuum. How about well, that? Th there are definite similarities. You know, there's, yeah, the, there's yeah. the pantheon of gods. We've got our, our Washington and our Lincoln and our Reagan. And, you know, I, I, I'm writing about this in the book I'm working okay. on now. It's sort of what I'm immersed in, which is why it popped up. This whole, okay. The way these irrational, um, you know, this appetite for irrational belief, uh, fervent belief, yeah. expresses itself. It often is in terms of religion that sort of absorbs that energy. You know, it's it's a yeah. perfect racket because that energy is already there. Um, and you can see it in nationalism as well. And I'm wondering to what extent those two things either work together or, you know, I mean, there's all this stuff about the Vatican and World War II not helping the Jews and working with the Nazis and, you know, all sorts of stuff. But anyway, let's let's not get get off onto the Nazis. We'll never get out of that morass. <laughs> Wait, but I, I, I like what you, I, you know, I think you're onto something and I don't even, you don't even need to do historical examples. You can just, I mean, this is, you can even just look at the psychological and social psychological studies nationalism and religious fervency correlate to a T. The more religious a person is, the more likely they are to be strongly nationalistic and vice versa. So this is yet again another aspect of the good news of secularism. I have a lot of data that shows secular people are less likely to be nationalistic and militaristic and religious people are more likely. And it's, it's one of those things I like to pull out of my back pocket a lot because I just was talking to this uh, Christian scholar, uh, God, Paul Frost. He was speaking to my class, and he sort of said something like, well, you know, you know, nationalism is, is so evil, and if people aren't religious, they'll turn to nationalism. And it was like, actually, those things reinforce each other. They don't replace each other. Um, you know, so you're on to something, and, and there's a lot there. Well, I'm, I'm going even deeper in, in this book I'm working on because what I'm trying to argue is that we – Generally, most people have an irrational, fervent belief in the good of civilization and that civilization itself and embedded within that the notion of progress are irrational, disprovable uh, beliefs that we hold. And we don't it, – it, it's a hell of a lot of work to get someone to the point where they can even see that as a belief structure, you know, and start to question it. Say it ain't so, Chris. <laughs> I mean, so, I, I can't believe that. You you write books because you believe the world is improvable. You have podcasts because you believe progress is possible. Am I right? No. Why do you do these things? Well, you know, I do these things because I believe that suffering is um, – 
is something that can be mitigated through okay. knowledge. Okay. So I, I do these things, be, you know, honestly, the, the first reason I do these things is to maintain an audience so that when I write a book, a bunch of people will buy it and maybe it'll get on the bestseller list. And sure, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the, the, I can relate to that. Yeah. That's the primary reason. The second reason you'll notice, which is also a selfish reason is that I get to talk to people like you and whoever I find interesting, you know, they've got a reason to set aside some time to chat with me. So that makes my life more interesting. Sure. Um, you know, and the third reason is that it creates a community of people uh, who are interested in this stuff and who like my take on it and like the sort of people that I bring on. And that is wonderful, enriches my life, but it also enriches their lives because I get emails all the time from people who say, um, you know, I found a community. I've, you know, you, you right. have convinced me I'm not crazy. And the people you have on the show who are smart, they're professors, they're authors, they're scientists, they reinforce what I feel myself, but I didn't know anyone else felt it, you know? Gotcha. So, but I don't think it's changing the world. I don't think it's going to save us from global warming or the trillions of tons of plastic circulating in the Pacific Ocean. I have an essentially, uh, apocalyptic view of our species and civilization. So, so it's like it's like it's sort of like arranging a uh, a tea party on the Titanic. Yeah, I feel like I'm giving massages on the Titanic. <laughs> you know, okay, yeah, I hear you. I guess the difference I, I I agree with you in terms of the threat to the planet and the dangers of global warming and the sort of physical realities of what this planet can sustain. I'm very sad and, and and pessimistic on that front actually my wife is just sort of like hey man that's the way it goes she's she's pretty um <laughs> she's sort of stoic about it um but i guess the difference between you and me is i, I guess i do hold an irrational uh, notion that perhaps i agree with martin luther king that that there is a kind of arc where we are um decreasing suffering little by little we have a lot of setbacks there's always an atomic bomb now and then there's always a rwanda now and then but if i look at the course of human history i feel like human rights increase and expand little by little suffering of sentient creatures decreases little by little again there's always a wrench in it but the but but we get back on track and we do better and we do better and when i read uh, so i guess i i have i guess i'm i'm one of those folks you're trying to diagnose i, I do have a sort of a belief that that there is a is progress being made you know and, and it's the curse of my of my life at the moment that I'm writing a book um disputing that and the, but the truth is and maybe maybe you can relate to this on a completely different level the truth is that I envy you the comfort of your belief mm. and I don't want to take it away from you Oh god I hate being on the re on the receiving end of those sentiments I'm usually the one saying it to Yeah I figured you'd relate to that <laughs> That's but, so sad. Um, but, but no, but on a, on a completely serious level, yeah. you've got kids. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. And I, I, I get really uncomfortable sometimes when I'm speaking to people who have kids and we're talking about these sorts of issues because I feel like, well, I could point out A and B and C and D. I could really destroy this guy's position. But right. what, what the, why would I want to do that? This person <laughs> has kids who he's worried about the world they're going to inhabit He's worried about his grandkids, the world they're going to inhabit. Yeah. What's yeah. in it for me to, to, you know, beat him into submission? It's not something I really want to do, but I, but I do feel it's true. You know, right. I mean, you can sell a hell of a lot more books yeah. if you're hopeful. No, so, I hear you. I, 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 like I said, I, I take that position to a T whenever I'm talking to a religious believer or absolutely. Um, 
and I and I and I also would say, I guess what distinguishes me from a religious believer is I'm perfectly willing to say you very may may very well be right, and this could just be a result of of the oxytocin in my brain and the kind of personality I have. I'm generally an optimistic guy, so it, 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 you're right. It could be totally irrational and just kind of part of my personality. It, it's a strange it's a strange thing because I'm you know this book I'm writing it's called Civilized to Death, right? Okay. <laughs> it's not, I love it. Yeah, it's a, a bit of a downer. Um, but but what I'm arguing against is a vision of human nature and nature itself and, and the pre-civilized life, which I think is demonized, which gets us back to, to mm-hmm. you know religion. Um, l- let me read you a, a quote that I'm working on right now. You'll, you'll get a kick out of this and see if you can guess who wrote this. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. Wow. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, others are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference." I'm going to go with Jim Belushi. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> the big Lebowski. Uh, yeah. Oh, there we go. Hey, I wasn't far off. I wasn't no. Far off. Um, you yeah. Know, you yeah. know, uh, there was a giveaway. It's Richard Dawkins. Okay. Ultimate, enough. ultimate atheist. The God of the atheists. Well, I caught the selfish gene reference. And then I thought, oh, it couldn't be Richard. <laughs> he would never pat himself you know, on the back. I mean, I obviously I first went, oh, Nietzsche or it's going to be, you know, Malthus or something. But but uh, yeah, powerful, sober, sober words. Right. Oh, I think it's pure bullshit. In uh, the sense that. In the sense that what he's doing is he's demonizing the natural world. Oh, I see what you're saying. And he's saying, you know, the natural state, he he says the natural state of starvation and misery must be restored. You know, I've spent a fair amount of time hiking around looking at wild animals and stuff. And I don't see, you know, wild animals that are all starving and miserable. Well, that was my when you started reading it. That was my first thought. I was like, "Well, this is kind of an empirical question here. Are we we could measure the degree to which you know we could pick a species and say what percent of its life is spent licking and sleeping and napping and smelling exactly. and what percent? Of, I mean, it's it's almost it's not even an opinion. It's just like we could quantify it. You know, like, exactly. I mean, I mean you you huh. go to the you know to a safari and what do you see? You see a bunch of lions lying around sleeping. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And then I, you know, I, I absolutely agree. It's a, what a talk about projection on the part of Richard Dawkins. Yeah. But you've got, see, now this is the thing. What they do is they demonize the natural state. Hobbes did the same thing, right? The life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. They demonize the life in the natural state in order to make 
the civilized life seem better by comparison. Interesting. And thereby fuel this belief in progress, which is just propaganda. And that's why I equate it with religious belief. It's like saying, hey, stick with us and we'll, you know, you'll get salvation. Well, you know, stick with us. We're going to cure cancer. Sure you are. Get back to me when you have, right? Well, I guess the difference is I spent two years in Denmark. And I have to say, Chris, uh, I found evidence of progress. I found evidence hey, of I'm civilization. with you. you know, I'm like, with you. If the, saw, if the Danes or the Dutch take yeah. over the world, then you'll, you'll convince me. Fair enough. Yeah, it could be outliers. <laughs> but, I mean, in all seriousness... I, I marveled at the degree to which this is a this is a mass society. These aren't small hunters and gatherers living in in mango ridden jungles. These are people. Uh, you know, <laughs> these are these are tens of millions, twenty three million Scandinavians. So this is a mass society. It's industrialized. It's technologized. It's got all the things that 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 you know progress can be seen as detrimental or alienating, and yet uh, they have addressed so many points of suffering so well yes birds do sh still shit there yes you can get cancer but but the degree to which they have reduced human suffering is so powerful to experience i i have to see it as evidence of the potential the potential of humans to progress beyond a state that was rougher i i don't think life in scandinavia in the year 512 I, I do think it was worse. I think there was more rape, more violence, more disease, more arthritis, more gangrene, more starvation than today. I just do. Oh, yeah, no question. I, I mean, if you compare uh, the present uh, of Northern Europe to medieval times, there's no question right. about that. Um, but, you know, not to keep throwing cold water on this, but isn't yeah. the suicide and depression rate in Denmark quite high? It's higher than average. It's higher than most places, but it's not top twenty. Oh, you know, yeah, they 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 do have their problems. That Finland has re breaks the top twenty, but Denmark, Sweden, and Norway do not. Um, it's still higher than other places. They they also have uh, you know they're also uh, you know there's a lot of critiques we could make of Scandinavia. Yeah. I guess I was just trying to, and I know we're kind of getting all over the place, but. I'm, I'm agreeing with you about the sort of characterization of nature as problematic and polemically motivated for some type of uh, political or ideological bullshit. I guess I'm just challenging the notion that there's no evidence that, that there's progress that can be made over the course of, of civilization. Oh, yeah, sure. Depending on what, you know, what parameters you're looking at. As I say, if you're looking at medieval times versus now uh, in that particular part of the world, sure. What right. I'm doing in this book is looking at uh, you know, civilized versus hunter gatherer, pre civilized. And so enough. that's, you know, those are different, uh, different places. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I, we've only got a few minutes left. I know you have to go get your kids. I, I you know, I, it's up to you, but I'd love to pick this up again some other time if you have time. This, you're, oh, my pleasure. A lot of fun chatting with you. Um, do you, uh, in the few minutes we've got left, you, you mentioned before I turned on the mic the terrible, terrible um, situation where my cousin puked in your flower bed um i God, oh man he's man. gonna be so pissed that i told you that <laughs> he should be so ashamed of that oh my god <laughs> so i love the story uh, any story that begins you know your cousin had too much manischewitz at my bar mitzvah <laughs> exactly <laughs> is a good story so you were bar mitzvah which means you were raised in a religious tradition what happened uh, 
Yeah, okay, so just as Buddhism is always presented as this kind of counterexample to any, you know, definition of religion as, you know, oh, you got to believe in God or it has this structure, this, that, Judaism is yet another counterexample where it doesn't fit neatly and cleanly into, a, into a, a nice little box. So all four of my grandparents were atheists. Both my parents are non-believers. I am a third-generation non-believer, and yet you have this funny thing with Jews where we see it as an ethnicity, a culture, a heritage, and so the vast majority of especially American Jews uh, are godless Jews. So they, they like the holidays, they like the rituals, they, they like the community, they, they, they stick together in certain degrees. Uh, and so growing up, my folks, my dad wanted me to have a sense of Jewish identity, so he put me in the local... Reconstructionist synagogue Hebrew school, the Reconstructionist synagogue itself had an atheist rabbi, a non-believing, you know, nobody believed, but they went through the motions. So I did have this bar mitzvah, I did have to read from the Torah, I did have to learn Hebrew, uh, didn't understand any of it, didn't believe any of it, just went through it, had a great party, uh, got a Chris from Christina Laughlin, who was, uh, who was, um, oh God, what was his name? Billy, Billy, uh, you know that Kung Fu hero from the 70s? Um, Oh, Billy Jack? Billy Jack's daughter kissed me on the lips. That was a thrill. <laughs> so, um, but it really was done out of a kind of cultural inertia, um, not for any religious sense. So I never really had faith to begin with. So uh, I never lost it. And, and, and what that meant was I always sort of understood the community aspects of religion because that's what I was raised in. So I kind of understood why people went to an Episcopalian summer camp or why they went to this, uh, you know, oh, baptism of their niece or whatever. I kind of got the rituals. I got the community. Where I was always hung up on and, and, and it was the belief aspect. I couldn't understand how <laughs> human funny. beings with brains, you know, and I could believe this stuff. And I had a girlfriend when I was 15. She was 16. She w And she partied and she drank genuine Miller Genuine Draft like everybody. And she listened to MTV and Smoke Pot, the whole nine yards and, 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 and everything else that goes with that. And... Uh, and then one night she said, you know, oh, yeah, I'm born again. I said, well, what are you talking about? You know, oh, I believe Jesus is my personal savior and we're all sinners. And, and I really, I, I, couldn't, she, I couldn't wrap my brain around what she was saying. She might as well have told me that, that she thought elves lived in her, in her shoe or something. Like, I was like, what? You know, you, you really believe this stuff? I mean, I know, you, you, I know you're Christian, but you don't believe this. And, and ever since, it's, it's been a fascination and a kind of a horror for me that people the belief aspect of of sort of Islam and Judaism and Christianity and Hinduism and 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 certain aspects of Buddhism where the people believe you know levitation. I mean even the even the even the Dalai Lama believes in reincarnation and blah blah blah. And people come back from past lives and so that that stuff has always troubled me and I've always debated about it. I've always tried to understand it and it's probably one of the main reasons I got so interested in secularism and atheism because I was like okay yes there's a chunk of humanity that. It's very clear that this stuff is is nonsense, and I was uh, uh, glad to know they exist, and I'd like to know more about them. Well, it's funny. So you're Jewish in everything except the religious belief. I would say so. Which, uh, I'm which, not, yeah. Sorry. Not, exactly. Like Freud. Freud described himself as a godless Jew. I mean, it's yeah. pretty common. But 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 there's a lot of confusion. You know, most people uh, think, oh, you're Jewish. Oh, you must be religious. But um, I think older generations kind of get that there's like a weird, is it an ethnicity, is it a race, is it a religion? You know, so, so, so Jews, I think, are a little bit uh, hard to pin down on that front. Yeah, a, a gay friend of mine once said that, he said, Chris, you're gay in everything except the sex <laughs> and, and the opera. 
<laughs> we got oh there you go. we gotta have a name for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I took it as a great compliment. Oh, you know? for sure. For I sure. mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, okay, you got to go get your kids. Uh, thanks for taking time to do this, and I hope we get to do a part two sometime. Sounds great, Chris. So nice to talk with you. I thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big if you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me, I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.